Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light. It is a wonderful new anthology Edited by Steffi Nelson, a collection of original essays that covers the turf that made Joan Didion a sensation. Hollywood, Patty Hearst, Malibu, Charles Manson, the Mojave Desert, the Summer of Love, the Central Park Five, you name it. Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light. Available now from Rare Bird Books. I see Hey, hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I have lost my voice. I have no voice. I don't know if you can hear it. It's coming back, but it's kind of still gone. So it's, you know, it's going to be hit and miss, but uh, it's good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, and I have as my guest for the second time, Amanda Yates Garcia. She is the Oracle of Los Angeles, and uh, as you may recall, she is a witch. And uh, she is now an author as well. She has published a memoir called Initiated, Memoir of a Witch. It is available from Grand Central Publishing. And uh, I read it cover to cover in one sitting and very much enjoyed it. And it, it is a, a, a personal story that we didn't get fully into the last time she was here, if my memory serves. And we all know that my memory doesn't always serve. But um, there's a lot of new ground to cover, and she is just a delightful person to have a conversation with. So I was very happy to get her back over here as uh, she celebrates the publication of this critically acclaimed, I might add, memoir called Initiated memoir of a witch so let's get to it this is amanda yates garcia aka the oracle of los angeles and her book one more time is called initiated my background is in you know more experimental literature and i also just really wanted to write like basically like a book of poetry about magic in witchcraft um and so that was in there too but then you know whenever i went to sit down to write this book 
my my story, my the story of my lineage, the story of my history would kind of rush into the room like a ghost, like a spirit, and and it would just demand to be heard. And I'd written several books before that I hadn't had published, and I would abandon them at the last minute, or um, or I would finish them and then just never do anything with them. And part of that was because a lot of the stuff from my early life is kind of sensational in nature and that, yeah, there's like abuse, there's like sex work, there's like, you know, trauma. And I didn't want to write about that. I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want to be known for that. Like that wasn't what I wanted to introduce. I didn't want to like make my debut with that. And I think that that is actually what prevented me from really pushing my work forward up until this point, because I had always basically been like, I don't, I don't want to speak about this publicly. And yet that was what wanted to be heard. And, and it was finally with this book that I was able to just be like, well, this is what's here. This what this is what wants to be spoken. And so this is what's coming out. So I, I think I was able I, I was able t- to develop a kind of ground or stability within myself that allowed me to, to speak about things that maybe before I hadn't really wanted to talk about. But it really liberated me, I think, to go on now and do other work that I feel like mm, is is really my true work. Like, I feel like this this book was really about dealing with the shadow that stands at the gate of our consciousness. And that shadow has to be encountered before you can really meet your true self. And I was always trying to kind of avoid that. Like in my work, in my writing before that, I didn't want to address that shadow. And then finally, I was ready to. Well, what changed? Because by the way, this resonates very deeply with me. Oh, it does? Yeah. I've been struggling with people who listen to this show know that I've babbled about this ad nauseum, but I've been struggling with the book. Um, you want to write all sorts of things that aren't necessarily painful or, um, self-revealing. Yeah. We, I think this is very common. Writers tend to dance around the thing they just have to write and it takes time. Sometimes we have to write entire manuscripts that we abandon. Yeah. And then eventually we just admit to ourselves, like, this is the thing I got to say. And it, it, it definitely speaks to me, this idea that like, I got to get this one out of me so that I can get to other stuff. Yeah. But none of the other stuff is going to be possible until I like get this boulder up the hill. Yeah. And it's like, you feel like you can bargain. Like you're like, well, I'll just do this other thing. I'll just focus on this other thing and I'll make it work. And then it just doesn't, it just crumbles and crumbles. And, and, and the spirit of the thing that really wants to be spoken demands to be heard and it will sabotage and sully all the things that you try and do until you are willing to encounter it. And yeah, I think I was in the bargaining phase of my grief over that where I was always like, maybe there's some other way around this. And I don't know really what it was that shifted except that, um, well, there were several things I think one was, you know, my, my career had gone to a place where I felt like more stable in it than I'd ever felt in my life, you know, where I was always sort of like scrambling just to survive. And I'd gotten to a place where I was stable enough that I felt like, okay, I can look at this and I can encounter this and I can still be safe in a way that I just didn't feel when I was younger. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. And then 
I think too, you know, I'd, I'd had, um, weird, just act of fate essentially where, um, I had been invited onto the Tucker Carlson show. Had I been on that? When- I want to talk to you about that because I have great, uh, admiration for how you conducted yourself on that oh, show. Thank you. And I think it provides a template actually for, um, other guests of his show who might come on in the role of the antagonist, mm. you know, he, they bring, they bring people on as punching bags, essentially. Totally. And you, and you acquitted yourself very well. And I think that you write about this, not maybe explicitly in your book. And it's about the, what was it? Was it about sex work and treating people with kindness? I think it was about working at that, um, that, uh, Rastafarian bar in Amsterdam. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, Amanda has, you know, her life contains multitudes. She's done all sorts of stuff. Um, I don't want people listening who haven't, um, read her book or, or familiarized themselves with her life and work to, to get lost. But, um, at one phase of your life, you did sex work at another phase. You were living in Amsterdam and working in a Rastafarian like weed bar. <laughs> yeah. And there were some pretty rough characters in there. There really were. Yeah. But one of the things that I learned at that place was essentially it's about kind of creating a, a systems of mutual aid and interdependence. Like that is a way that is essentially a spell where you're sort of preparing the ground where like if you if you create the energy field around you so that it's one of essentially like love or kindness it it just becomes much more difficult to attack you and i basically parlayed that knowledge into the the tucker carlson experience where i was basically like i i had watched some some um interviews with him where I saw that where he really went for blood with the person is if they started. So you watch tape, you prepared. I did. Okay. Of course. (laughs) Because I was, I I was really scared to go on that show because I was worried that I would get death threats, which I did. I was, I was worried that, you know, he would attack me in a really brutal way. And yeah, I also felt compelled to do it because I felt like I could, like, I felt like I, I felt like there was something that I wanted to say about the world and, and, and about witchcraft and about what, what I and other people in my world are doing that I felt like I, I would be able to handle it. And, and so I didn't want to just just turn it down if I felt like that there was the possibility that I could do some good there. But one thing that I did notice was that if someone started to, if someone seemed angry or if someone seemed defensive or if, if someone seemed like he was getting to them, that's when like his fangs would come out. Right. That's when the werewolf would appear. And okay. so I decided that there would be nothing that he could do or say that would sort of knock me off my pillar of love, so to speak. He, he would not be able to make me angry no matter what he did. Did you like, did, is there a spell? Like, what do we do? If we're going to go on Tucker Carlson, if anybody out there listening is going to have to go on like hate radio <laughs> or like the hate television, 
Yeah. Like, I, it's one thing to just say, you're not going to knock me off the pillar of love. But like, is, is that all it took? Or did you? Well, yeah, you know, it's so funny because people often ask me about spells. And they're like, could you just give me a 150 word spell for this little article that we're doing about love or whatever? And it's really like, no, because it's something that you cultivate over time. You know, it's, you know, you're, you're, you meditate, right? You're a Buddhist, do, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah Buddhist ish. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's really about about your daily practice. And um, one of the things in order to make your spells be able to work and have them be effective is that you have to trust what you say is true. So over time, you build up a sense of trust that if I say I will not be knocked off my pillar of love, then I won't be. And yeah. that's why like, my spells work is and because I trust when I say something, it's going to happen. You know how I know that you were effective on his show? How? Because I could tell that he was getting frustrated. <laughs> He sort of lost energy and he just yeah. sort of was like, okay, like yeah. he, he couldn't get, he couldn't get you to turn. And that's yeah. a victory. Yeah. That's a victory for these yeah. guys. And it's funny. Cause I was reading, um, on an airplane over these past you know few weeks, I was reading on an airplane, an essay by Steve Almond, who has guested mm. on this show many times. Mm, yeah. I love his work. Yeah. He's great. And he, um, back in the day resigned his post at Boston college when the college, which is a Catholic college invited Condoleezza Rice to come be the commencement speaker. And this was at the height of the Iraq war. Mm. And he was like, fuck it, I resign. And he wrote his resignation letter to the dean of the school, who's like a Catholic priest, like dear father, so-and-so. And then he sent it to the, uh, to the uh, Boston, Her or Boston Herald or the Boston, one of the Boston papers. And it ran there. And so then of course the wire services pick it up and he got invited onto Hannity mm. and they shut him down. So I think there's like, like in the middle of the interview, they basically had promised him it was going to be a 10 minute segment. And at five minutes, it was like, and wow. he, he was in Boston in a studio. He writes about this, yeah. but it's like, those are the outcomes either. Like they punch themselves out and they just realize it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be what they want. You know, they're not going to get the, the verbal fisticuffs because that's their turf or you're going to get them so frustrated or you're going to put them in such an awkward position that like the producers backstage just cut it hmm. once they realize that like the bubble's been burst. Um, and so that's fascinating because I think anybody who has uh, what I would characterize as a, an appropriate antipathy towards what they do has like nurtured some sort of fantasy. Like what would I do if I was on that show? <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, it's really hard to know because probably as Steve Allman mentioned, like, you're not like I wasn't in a room with Tucker Carlson. I was in like a little closet in Culver City in, with these earbuds in my ears that have a delay. And you're looking at two video screens, one of yourself and one of him. And it's delayed. And if you've ever talked into your cell phone when you can like hear yourself being repeated and you almost cannot talk. Right. And there's lights in your face and then you go in and then the producer says, okay, we're live in three. We're going to have 3 million people watching and probably another 10 million. Like later on, you're on <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. And, and I think the physicality of it is actually one of the most disrupting and difficult things. The, the, the delay of the sound and the feeling of the lights and being in this little room, and then, like, knowing that there's millions of people watching you, it's, and, and knowing that they're hostile, it's really hard to predict how that's going to feel. But I was definitely, like, I was doing a lot of grounding exercises right before that, like, 
visualizing myself rooted in the earth. I had stones in my pockets. I had magic talismans on. I had all of these things. This is what you need to do to survive (laughs) guesting on Tucker Carlson's show. Um, As a side note, because, you know, I think it's worth paying attention to this media, not as like a regular viewer or anything, but just being aware of it as a cultural force and being aware of like the consequences of its toxicity. Like, Mm. I don't, I don't think it's something we should necessarily turn away from. I think it's something we need to address um, collectively. But I found myself reading about Tucker Carlson, who I want to say in his early career was sort of like a mini PJ O'Rourke or Mm. like, you know, an heir to that throne, like sort of like a, a good humored, whip smart, sort of Ivy League bow tied conservative dude. Yeah. Which, like, you know, in a in a body politic, I can live with. Like we're not all gonna be if we're all lefties, then there's sure. you know, there's gotta be a right for there to even be a left. Mm. That's like the logic I subscribe to. Sure. Um and I don't want everybody to agree with me. That creeps me out. Well, yeah, I think it would be so refreshing and great if we could talk about conservative ideas, like from a traditional or like economic point of view that weren't bound up in all this like facet fascist, like misogynist, like, should we pay taxes? Like, that's a, you know, a viable question. But like, if it's like, should we lock children in cages or, you know, should we ban Muslims from entering? Then it it does definitely veer into a place where we're, I, I, I don't know that we should be, we should even be entertaining those kinds of It's gotten inquiries. off the rails yeah. in a very serious way. And we're seeing the consequences of that. But I found myself reading about uh, Tucker and I found it very interesting that he was um, abandoned by his mother as a no. child. And his mother... I didn't was know that. a bohemian who left the family and moved to the South of France to pursue sort of like this bohemian art life. Wow. And he won't talk about it except that in, breaks my heart. I'm actually feeling like I want to cry right no, now. No, it gave me great empathy for him, but it mm. made him make some sense to me. Um, not entirely. It's not, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify him or, you know, a person's life because not everybody to whom something like that happens turns out to be right. like a hate monger on television. But here's the thing though, like after being on that show, like everybody involved in that show, I really get the sense like they're like liberal, if not progressive and like all the behind the scenes people. I even got the sense just intuitively. So I don't know that this is actually true, but that, that who he says he is or the, the arguments that he puts forward on his show, I don't think he actually believes them to the degree that he puts them forward, which actually terrified me even more because I got the sense from being on it, that it was all this big performance, that it was all this like circus show that was just like, well, this is what gets ratings. So this is what we're going to do. And you could see how, you know, that, that slippery slope of being corrupted by the, the, the forces of, you know, capital of the, the way that the, the sort of industrial media machine is, is produced. And even probably you or I have, um, encountered moments where you have to sort of make moral or ethical decisions in your own work of like, will I do this 
lame thing or this thing that I think that I don't believe in. And then every time you do it, it gets a little bit easier to do it more and more. We like we talk about that with politicians, right? Like yeah. that they start off with the right intentions, but then when they get to the place where they're all their donors are like oil companies and they're like completely corrupted. But what was terrifying about it was thinking about that so many people do believe what he's saying and that like policy is made on that, that people are electing, you know, Trump based on what is essentially like a, a cop show. It's like, it's completely Hollywood from what I, from what I got a sense of there. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I remember being haunted by either an interview or something, Kurt or um, Keith Olbermann, the, mm -hmm. the MSNBC pundit for many years and, and like sports center ESPN guy was saying about um, a juncture in his career when he was either being interviewed by Roger Ailes at Fox. He was essentially with Hannity at the dawn of Hannity and or close to it. And Hannity looked at him and was like, God, what did he say? It was basically like, we can say anything. Like they, they, they believe it. Like all you got to do is say this yeah. and, you get, and you get paid. Like, yeah. it's, it's about money. He's like, it's complete performance art. Um, but I think when you get rich enough and you feel powerful enough, and he's got a lot of power within the ranks of Republican political um, machinery that you can start to convince yourself of things that are completely at odds with reality and uh, decency. But I think Hannity is sort of a sociopath in that way, in that he, he doesn't give a shit about the consequences of what he's doing to him. It's like, it's all fair game. It's capitalism. This is what the market wants. This mm. is ratings. Mm. That's a very empty, very cynical approach. It's very cynical and horrifying. And also I think of, you know, like, I think most people who've been in the working world do make choices like that on a smaller scale. And I think it, it speaks to the kind of system that we live in that creates the possibility for that to happen. And that in order for us to change that system, like in order for we, for us to change that, we have to change the entire system in which things operate because like, well, you're, I don't want to interrupt you just so people listening um, are aware of this, your book, uh, which is a memoir, I think nominally does include some critiques of capitalism through the lens of witchcraft, yeah. <laughs> um, which I wasn't expecting. Mm. 
but which I found interesting because I think in, in the work that you do, which it might help, um, for people listening, if you can just give like a broad overview of what, like, what does it mean to be a witch? Mm. What are you doing just yeah. quickly so that people are, like aren't lost? Yeah. Well, so I see clients privately. I have three basically different kinds of sessions. One is like tarot divination, which is really about reconnecting you with your intuition and sense of purpose. And, um, it, it, it asks questions about your life that can help you gain clarity about what you what you want to do and what you're hoping for. Um, and then I also do ritual and ritual, otherwise known as spells, um, is a way of essentially taking what is in your imagination and bringing it into material reality according to your will by using essentially theater. And then... I also do healing work that uses like breath and trance. And I'm sure everybody out there is thinking that it sounds very Californian and I am seventh generation Californian. So you would be right to think that, but essentially it's just about the, the healing work is about taking the time to really listen to your body and the way that the energy is moving through it, the way that the breath is moving through it and uh, operates from the position that we can do a lot of healing just through awareness. Okay. And so I would imagine in doing that work and in meeting with people who really are coming to you uh, for healing. Yeah. Of, of different kinds. Yeah. I would imagine that a lot of what you have realized or boiled things down to with a multitude of clients is that they are stressed about money. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a lot of compassion for for everybody living in our world right now because we're 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 having to make really difficult choices all the time and there's there's really because we live in such an individualistic culture and society there's a sense that the individual can solve the problem but really the problems are collective ones that we all need to work on together as a group. Yeah, I mean I always like the way that I'm I'm no expert. I, I tend to see things in gray and with nuance and I'm very, I get mistrustful of myself when I express too much conviction, per, particularly politically. I never feel good about it. It's like a sugar high. And mm. afterwards I'm sort of like, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I probably sounded annoying, but like if I can try to boil it down to its essence, I'm like, you're sort of between two poles. Like we're all in this together or it's every man for himself, mm. collective or individual. I think that the collective is made of individuals. Mm -hmm. I think that individuals are made of the collective. I think that my individual identity as Brad Listy or your individual identity as Amanda is real. I'm not sure. discounting that individuality and personal freedom are things of uh, value or substance. I just happen to believe that the deep interconnectivity of all things, people, animals, plants, the cosmos is the deeper truth. And so my politics don't discount the importance of individual liberty, but they lean more towards the deeper truth that we're all in this together and mm -hmm. we should legislate and organize ourselves as animals or whatever, you know, as homo sapiens in accordance with that. And it seems like we've gotten out of balance in the United States of America where the uh, individualism has uh, uh, been elevated to a degree that is unhealthy and has made people feel alienated and alone and angry. And this has then been 
um, exploited by bad actors, causing people to turn against one another. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, absolutely. But I and I I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a sort of legacy of you know the Enlightenment, or maybe even goes back to the Greeks or whatever. So it's probably not just the United States, but certainly in the Western world. And I do think that part of the work that I am doing is about you know work that reconnects us to our sense of community, our sense of something larger, our sense of purpose, um, because you know a lot of a lot of the rituals that we don't really do anymore, specifically in like intellectual culture, you know, a few of us go to church, for instance, or um, have, you know, you were talking about your football game and that is a place before where- we came on the air, I went to a football <laughs> game and I was feeling ashamed. I was confessing to Amanda. <laughs> But one of the reasons why we go to football games is so that we can have a collective experience. And because we don't have, but that collective experience, of course, is based on a sense of competition. Um, Yeah, it's dicey. I think it's also, I think it's also uh, based on a sense of powerlessness uh, or the desire to feel some sense of control or power or victory for people, especially men and especially um, white men. It would seem that, you know, turn to a game like football and invest all of this, I think this sense of personal identity in the team. Like my wife always teases me because I'll be like, yeah, I think we have a big game this weekend. She's like, oh, we do. I'm like, why am I speaking of this in the first person plural? Like I'm on the team, you know? Like, <laughs> but because I think that's not, it's, it's human nature to do that. And, and we have essentially magical and theatrical rituals, whether or not we call them that. And I think that's where a lot of people, when they sort of raise their eyebrows or roll their eyes at magic, they assume that they are not also practicing magic. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But they are like they're practicing ritualized action with an intention to change reality. I mean, most people who go to football games are, you know, they have their like lucky shirt that they have to wear or, you know, the chance that you all do when you're sitting around or I don't know, I guess I'm mixing <laughs> metaphors or games, but you have those like pointy spongy hands and stuff that you wave. <laughs> I mean, like there are all these accoutrements that one might call, you know, sort of magical talisman that people use but anybody who would look down their nose at witchcraft who also goes to like sporting events yeah they've got problems (laughs) but it also it makes a good point is that it's all at the end of the day um related in some way there are a lot of similarities and crossovers like we need these rituals you know and for people listening who might be like dude brad like sports are fun sports are fun like I shouldn't have to apologize too much for being a sports fan. I think I feel more sensitivity around football mm-hmm. because the people playing it are being brutalized. Yeah, um, it's a little violent for me, and I, you know, it just it's I can't. It's like an addiction almost. I've been such a fan for my entire life that it's hard for me to shake it. Well, you're you're an addict for a reason because when people do things collectively, like it serves a really important and fundamental purpose about sort of creating a sense of homeostasis or balance within our psyches. And so you, we need that. Like as human beings, we need that. I think one of the reasons why we as Americans have been so able to, to proceed with such ruthlessness is that our public and collective rituals don't allow for spaces to reconnect as a community or to connect to the land. Like over, over New Year's, I was, um, 
honored to be able to attend a, a football game, <laughs> a Native American ritual with the Tiwa people in um, in New Mexico, and they did a dance called the Turtle Dance, which is 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 a dance of celebration. It's all the men do this, and they go around the village and um, they they do this repetitive dance, sort of in front of each place, in each sort of family home in the village. And the thing is about collective dances of that nature is that what you're doing is you're, because you're all doing it collectively, you're saying this land is sacred to us. This day is sacred to us. This animal is sacred to us. And you are making it sacred by doing those collective rituals in that space. And that's something that we don't really understand anymore. But what you're doing when you're going into a collective, into a football game or something is also saying, we are all here doing this thing together. This thing is sacred to us. And you're making it so by participating in it, by putting all of your energy into it, by putting your money into it, by, by flying cross country to go there. <laughs> you're saying this is important. This is something that we believe in collectively. And so it's important to think about what our rituals are doing what they're reifying, what they're reinscribing. And, you know, maybe if you had more opportunity to do some dances for, you know, the, 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 the water or, you know, for, I, I mean, I think we should all be doing dances for the, the kelp forests that are dying or, um, you know, the, the, the animals that are being driven off the land. Like if we were, if we were all collectively saying, this is really important that all of the men in our group get together and dance in celebration of this animal, we wouldn't be killing those animals. Like we wouldn't allow that to happen, but instead we focus our efforts on getting all together and Sorry, I don't mean to criticize. No, I, trust me, I, I criticize it myself. It's like, you know, it feels a little wonky to me. But it, but it's also evidence of what we as a culture value, right? So then it just gets reinscribed over and over and over again. And in order to change that, like we have to actively change our collective rituals. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do with my work. But it's also hard because people don't want to or they don't understand. I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm with you. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I, I think there needs to be radical change. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think so. Otherwise yeah. we're all going to die. Otherwise we're all going to die. <laughs> like that's the point. The species yeah. is killing itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, and I have over the years poo-pooed the idea of uh, interplanet or interplanetary travel, mm -hmm. like the whole Mars crowd. And it's infuriating. It is. It is. And I have said, this is bullshit. Let's take care of earth. Mars looks like Mars feet. doesn't have an atmosphere. Right. It doesn't have a biosphere. No, it, it doesn't have animals, plants, life, right. mycelium. It doesn't have that. Why would we trade this? It's so infuriating. I get that. I read an essay uh, by, I think it's Tim Kreider over the break where he was like, I'm actually pro Mars simply because it makes it seem like humans are planning for the future. It's like when someone has a cancer diagnosis and they're making vacation plans to Bali. It's like, okay, we're not just giving up. Just like, well, who's going to go there though? I don't, not me. The the rich people, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's not going to be the, the not, it's not going to be the people who are the most vulnerable, vulnerable and the most impacted by the destruction that yeah. is being wrought. It'll be like the Titanic. Like the rich people get the life. Yes. Boats. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not buying that solution. Okay. I just thought it was kind of funny. I was like, yeah, it's like, they're, you know, we're not just like sitting on our ass, just like waiting for the meteor or waiting for the planet to implode. We're making plans. 
but it's not the answer. The answer is to make the changes that we need to make. Do you think it's possible in our lifetime for radical change to happen, especially here in the United States? I think it's possible. I think it probably is unlikely, but I have to live as if it is possible and as if we can do it. I think it really comes down to deciding like how how you want to live. Like given that you know we are currently living in a time that is extremely dangerous more and more I think you know it's time that we who have been so privileged really you know are willing to take more risks that our bodies are not as valuable as like life itself on this planet and that we have to be willing to take more risks for the for the beings for the people for the plants and the animals and and the biosphere that is that is every day disappearing more and more and and i i know that's really scary and it's not a popular like it's not going to get me more followers on instagram no no but i'm right there with you and i think that you know um like, for example, like this is just one example, but like Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio is like a big environmental uh, activist and I applaud that. He's yeah, ab- But sure. then he's like on a private yacht in the Caribbean over the holidays, mm. which like on a practical level, like, look, he can't go out anywhere without people being all over him. But it's also like, dude, like you're, you're burning a lot of fuel on that yacht. <laughs> yeah. You're on a jet that's private, you know, like uh, the point that I'm driving at. And I say this to myself primarily is that at some point we really have to start to sacrifice for our beliefs. And I think that's what you're saying when it's like, you got to start to put your body on the line, especially if you're privileged, Mm. you know, and you're coming at this from a place of more security and, um, stability or whatever. Uh, but you got to really seriously change behavior. It can't just be lip service. It can't just be like bleeding on social media. It's got to be tangible and it's got to be a little painful. Yeah. It's it's kind of like with writing, like if it doesn't hurt, it's not working. Like if you're right, if when you're writing, your, your brain doesn't hurt and you don't feel like a failure, you're probably not doing it right. And I think that's probably true with social change as well. Okay. So we're going to shift gears, but I think in a way that makes some sense from this juncture. And I want to talk about your origins as a witch. Uh, by the way, where is the witch vote in 2020? Are you on, like, it sounds like Bernie, but are you more? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I would vote for Bernie or uh, Elizabeth Warren. Those two. Yeah. Either one of them. I, I like them both. Um, and by the way, I want to just interject here because I'm, I'm, I'm there too. Mm-hmm. Like people, if you're out there and you're getting pissed off and there's this internecine warfare, if I'm pronouncing that word right, mm-hmm. um, we got to stop that on the left. I don't like the cat fighting or the bickering and the knives out among people like the factionalizing Mm. either one of them would be great even if it's not one of them but it's one of the other people that's highly preferable to what we currently have yeah i mean trump is a huge threat to like all life on earth and so it really at this point i i mean i definitely have problems with the democratic party or even you know i'm i'm probably more of an anarchist in nature but i think at this i'm also a pragmatist (laughs) it's just like i'm gonna do whatever i need to do i will campaign for whoever is can beat trump just to, to prevent the 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 violence towards you know trans people towards people of color towards like children being locked in cages at the border towards our like national parks like towards all animal life towards plants i mean it's just like the list goes on and on so 
whatever we need to do to cause less harm, I will do it. I'm with you. Um, so transitioning to witchcraft, witchcraft, your origin story, childhood stuff. Um, I don't think we talked about the abuse, mm. um, but you were abused by a cousin cousin. Okay. Mm. Sorry. That was like a stepbrother, but cousin abused you and your sister growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, very difficult, you know, recounted in the book. Um, it's painful to read, you know, probably was painful to write, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, you probably, you probably interviewed quite a few people who have had like abuse or trauma in their childhoods and they probably talk about it in a really neutral tone. Usually I would imagine like when they talk about it on here, I think by the time that usually by the time that people, you know, are appearing before you, like they're kind of a pearl around the, you know, the, their defenses around that area are probably pretty well established. Yeah. And you know what to say. You yeah. have the, like, you know how to tell the story for yeah. like, the lay person. Yeah. You probably told it a lot of times to your therapist or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> right. yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it, it did feel, it did feel raw to write that. I mean, ultimately the book is a triumphant book and I, there is trauma in it, but I don't feel that it's just like about that trauma, but I didn't feel like I could address, you know, I think the reasons why people are turning towards witchcraft now is because of like legacies of trauma that go back through our family lineages. And we're trying to find other ways of accessing power or authority or healing that aren't created by the establishment, which, you know, in my family, you know, my, my cousin wasn't part of the establishment, but my mother also suffered extreme abuse from her father. And so this idea of like daddy coming to protect you or the, this, the sort of established authority figure being someone that you could rely on or turn to in, in a time of vulnerability just wasn't there for me. And I, and it wasn't there for my mother. And, and I think that is part of why we turn to these um, practices that would be considered, yeah, very alternative, quote unquote. Um, well, it's interesting because I was talking to Milo Martin, he's a poet, he's a friend of mine, um, a couple episodes ago, and I had known him for years and years before he told me that he had um, suffered with some of this stuff as a mm, child. Mm. And one of the stories that he told on the show, and that he had told me actually prior um, in a previous conversation, was that when he was a, a kid, his stepfather who mistreated him, uh, to say the least, would make him like stand in a corner and like face the wall for like 10 hours. Right. And what he would do is he'd be looking at this wall, which was, you know, there would have like either wood paneling. It had like the, what do you call it? The the, pan, the markings in the wood, you know? Yeah. What's, like grain, the grain the, of the, the wood. Grain, the grain of yeah. the wood. And he would look in it and he would find little, he would look at shapes and like make faces out of it. And he invented this whole world of like fairies and sprites. And yeah, it's like disassociating and, and yeah, it, it, I mean, that's what it, but it, like it, I found some corollary when I was reading your book between that story and like this, this, uh, uh, drift or this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This transition you made where mm. suddenly you become interested in the world of witchcraft. Like it well, makes yeah, but, some sense, but there's, I mean, there's, a huge precedent for that, right? Like, for instance, um, in a lot of shamanic cultures, the the shaman has to have like a near death experience, or has to get gravely ill, or you know, has some sort of traumatic experience before they become a shaman. Because, and and I think a lot of writers, you know, turn towards the life of the mind or the life of the imagination because of some sort of rift or rupture that that 
made them have to find another world to live in besides just the one that was sort of there and made immediately available to them. But the thing I think about shaman and witches and writers is that you're not just going into that world to escape, but what you're doing is you're going in there to find something of value and beauty to bring back into the quote unquote real world to the present world to act as some sort of, I mean, I don't want to say that like writing is about healing, but I do think that it is about reenchanting this world and about finding some sort of power within yourself that you can, that you can find and sort of revivify, replant, reseed the world around you that has been sort of burnt down or destroyed. I think that you're finding other resources besides the ones that have been given to you. And, and that that's something that has been done, you know, for thousands of years like that. I think that's essentially the human project. Yeah. Well, and you talk about it in your book about having to visit the underworld in order to become a witch, right? Yeah. You, you got to spend time. You got to go there. You gotta, so, you've got to be humbled. Right. Yeah. So that's what, like when, I'm, when we're talking about like the, the collective situation that we find ourselves in, and I guess more immediately, like the, the American situation we find ourselves in, I'm like, how humble do we got to get? Like, do we got to go way down low into the underworld before people are going to finally wake up? There's a part of me that's, that feels that logic, mm. like in order for like people to wake up out of like the Fox news zombie trance, mm. like shit might have to get really bad. And suddenly they'll go, wait a minute, mm. you know, or not. I don't know. But I, I just like, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but like, remember in Indiana Jones and the temple of doom yeah. where he's got to burn him with the torch. Yeah. <laughs> to, like, wake him yeah. Up. That's how I feel. I'm like, you know, like, come on people. Like, I wish it were that simple almost, but. Well, I think that there are a lot of people who are already down there, you know, and that, that they're all, there are, there's, they're the ones who are fighting. Like people, there are a lot of people who've been to the underworld and have been in the underworld for a long time. And like in the book, I talk about, you know, like that, that we've sort of mapped this train that, you know, that we're, that people who are in the underworld are, are trying to find ways to support one another, to light each other's torches. And have I been to the underworld? I mean, probably in some ways. Okay. How do you know if you're there? Like if somebody's listening, they're like, am I in the underworld? Like I mean, I think you know when you're in the underworld, right? I mean, but there's always like levels. You can always like look back and say, oh, I didn't realize how deep I'd gotten or I thought I was out and now I'm actually back in. But I mean, I, the underworld is like this is like constantly changing form and it's a place of richness. It's a place of treasure, but it's also a place of like humbling and humility and darkness and, and, um, like unknowing, like lostness. Um, and this is that we're, we're speaking when we speak of the underworld, not of a physical place, but of a um, emotional, metaphysical space. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking, you know, I, in, in the book, I talk about how I went on this trip to Crete and um, spent a lot of time in caves there. And I thought a lot about like how, the island of Crete, the island of Crete. Yeah. yeah. In, in Greece. And, uh, and how, you know, in our, in our culture, we don't spend a lot of time underground. Like even if we're in subways, they're well lit. We're like listening to a podcast, we're reading a book. 
we don't we don't have a sense of like being underground. We want to be like in the penthouse apartment. We want to be at the top of the mountain. We want to be like with our Subaru at the top of the mountain, like <laughs> declaring that we have risen, you know, the, the declaring dominion. But, you know, part of our problem as a species or as a culture is that we we aren't taken underground where we're where we see like, you are nothing, you're not important, you come from the earth, and you will go back into the earth, you are not, you can't bring this with you, you're part of something larger, you are an earthly being, you are, you belong to the earth, and it will, you know, it will swallow you when you die and death is real. And, and I think knowing that, you know, I think about this so much in relation to de- depression and my clients, especially. The problem with depression in our culture is that it's not just that we get depressed. It's not just that we slow down. It's not just that we feel sad. It's that there's also the threat like, oh, if I am depressed, I will lose my house. I will end up homeless. I will be abandoned by my friends. Everybody wants me to be successful. And if I can't be, then I will lose everything. But I think what depression is really calling us to do is to look around and say something is wrong. We are not humble before the larger forces of the earth. Like we are out of connection because I think that depression is really a signal that we're out of connection with the things that are really the most important things in life. The truth of what life is on a really fundamental and and um, spiritual level. And so now we, we medicate it. And I understand that because like, we have to be able to function. But I think that there, if we had a culture where there was space, like imagine if we didn't just try and like get ourselves back into working order so we could go back to work as a culture. And if we let people be in the underworld, to be in the underground, to be in that that cave, that dark place, I think what we would find there is that we're very much out of alignment, that we need to do things differently, that the things that we think are important are not as important as we thought that they were. And, and that is one of the reasons why we just cannot, as a culture, let that happen. Like if people who were depressed still knew that they were safe within community, that they weren't going to be abandoned, that they weren't going to be just tossed out, they weren't going to lose their home, that they might be able to bring forth from that place some really deep and profound wisdom about where we needed to to change and where we needed to grow as a culture. But we don't allow people that space to do that. I was going to say the velocity of life, especially like work life, but just life in general in this country, the way it's presently constituted makes makes finding that sort of time very difficult. And I cannot tell you just this morning I was thinking because I had to get out of bed. I slept great. I was so tired after traveling and I was like, I wish I could just stay in bed all day. Mm. Like, you know, that feeling Mm -hmm. like I'm fucking tired. Mm. I need a rest and there's no time for, you know, no rest for the weary, that whole thing. Yeah. And so, and, and I have it good by comparison to almost everybody Mm. uh, on the planet. And I'm aware of that. And so, and it's like, well, how do, how do people who are really under it feel? Yeah. You know? And so, um, I sometimes get like frustrated to the point where I'm like, I wish we could, especially with the people who I feel like are the most intransigent or the ones who are maybe celebrating or or exploiting this state of circumstances. Um, I'm like, I wish we could just dose everybody. Yeah. Which is, what would you dose them with? Oh, it's like hallucinogens. Yeah. Like ayahuasca or something to just, something something to just, Mm -hmm. um, something to just, 
in a way that is uh, inarguable make them realize that there's that whatever they think of as reality is uh, an illusion. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, like as messy as those experiences can be and, and as dangerous in certain circumstances, you know, it's not for everybody, but do you see what I'm saying? It, like, I guess it's just the desire for a quick fix. It's like, how do we accelerate this? And you know what? There are people that argue that like the, like you, you speak of like rituals um, and needing to connect people to the land. And you talk about dancing for, you know, the animals or whatever, mm. um, you know, back in the day in indigenous cultures, that's what these, um, you know, that's what the like mushrooms um, in particular, I think, because they, they grow on the earth. Like mm -hmm. they were used in certain cultures, indigenous cultures for those rites. Ayahuasca to this day is still, you know, ritualized. And there's a place down in Mexico. What is it like San? It's up in the mountains. There's a town. But they have rituals where they'll all sit there and like eat a mushroom in the dark and have their visions. And, you know, it, people might roll their eyes. But why like, would they roll their eyes? Well, I know people, certain people might. Mm, you know, yeah, but why? Let's really think about it. Yeah. Like, well, there's crazy people in some mountain town in Mexico eating mushrooms. But then, like, I've, I've watched a documentary about it. And you see the way in which they're doing it, which is not hedonistic and at all. This is not like a bunch of like frat boys at a concert. Mm. Um, this is like, you know, they do this every year at the same time in the same place and everybody sits there and you know, that's it. It's not like they're drinking too. You know, they just eat the mushroom, they go through the experience and they came out of it. And then they're talking to whoever's interviewing them on camera. And, you know, I don't think anybody watching it, could possibly argue that they don't sound totally sane, <laughs> right? you know, like, or at least saner than what we see on our television screens in this country on a nightly basis. Um, so I don't know, you know, uh, I'm sure that you probably, um, uh, I know you have experience because I read your book with this stuff does, uh, quote unquote plant medicine factor into witchcraft at all. Do you feel like that's part of a solution or do you think that's just like one place where people might be able to, um, like shake up the snow globe. <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons why plant medicines are growing in importance for people right now is because our understanding of what reality is has become so entrenched and is constantly sort of reified by the media machine, by newspapers, by the culture that we live in, by the imperatives of capital that demand that we work, that demand that we like keep going on the rat race, that we like do the same thing every day in these rituals, like we get on the freeway and all of that. Right. And then we get to work and then we work really hard. Um, and so in order to break through that very infirmly, almost like um, ossified, calcified version of what reality is, plant medicines can be really helpful because if you take them, your version of reality, that version will collapse. Excuse me. And like, what I love about it is that it's a, it's kind of a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Whereas I, I really, from, you know, ritual, trance work, breath, all of that can get you to the same place. It's just that it requires more of you and maybe more than a lot of us are disciplined enough to do. Like I think for instance, you know, meditation can get you the same kind of breakthroughs in your sense of what reality is as 
ayahuasca can. And the good thing about meditation, of course, is that it also, while you're doing it over years to get to that place, you're also building the infrastructure in your life for the will and the discipline in order to be able to integrate the knowledge that you get from that big breakthrough moment. But in our culture, we're like, the big breakthrough moment is the important thing. And then we want it now. We want it yesterday. We want like (laughs) Botox. We want like, you know, we want everything to be fixed. And I guess maybe that's the same impulse I have with this dosing thing. I think like, you know, it's therapy, it's communication. It's the grinding work of communication between human beings, particularly those of disparate viewpoints. Well, I think, I do think that the, you know, mushrooms, ayahuasca, specifically plant medicines, like this is probably where, you know, some of your listeners are going to be like, all right, this is a little out there. But I, I, I believe that they're the plant world trying to communicate with humans because it the 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 plant world recognizes the great peril that it is in. And when like if you've experienced plant medicines, then you like for instance mushrooms when was the last time well when was the last We're time? We're gonna talk about okay. that. Okay. But so you really do feel like you are experiencing the consciousness of nature. At least that's the way that I, I feel. I, I completely agree. And I feel like you are communicating with the you're 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 being invited in to this new language. Um and I I think that we would be naive to think that humans are the only creatures on this planet that are capable of communicating in a sophisticated way. I mean, we are part of this planet. What makes us think that the planet itself is not capable of communicating in a sophisticated way? The planet itself is a living organism. Yeah. Far more sophisticated than we are. Yeah. Like our hubris is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I really do think that, you know, in my experiences with both of these medicines, especially in recent years, um, the kind of urgency, I, I feel like has very feminine force. Especially ayahuasca. Right? Ayahuasca is like a female. They like, call it, they call like grandma. Not, I've never done ayahuasca, but it's like I watch Kentucky ayahuasca. You just ayahuasca. know it's a she. You, you know. just know it's a she. Yeah. And she's speaking with greater and greater firmness. Like, this is very dangerous. What is happening is very dangerous. You need to do something about this right now. In fact, when I first started um, taking it, there was a period of like six months where I'd had this really just horrifying experience where she was basically saying like, it's going to get really bad here. You know, it's going to get really bad on this planet. And, and, and you could see the dark wave coming. And I just wanted to like go up to everybody that I saw after the experience and like shake them and be like, we need to do something. Yeah, right? Like we need to do something right now. And since that time, I've kind of come back to myself and, and, and come to a place of more sort of grim determination about it. But I was really in a kind of Cassandra moment there for a while. Um, but I do think that, that, you know, the, the, that they these medicines are a way of communicating with humans but like we're just not getting it in a lot of ways and furthermore you know like i i really believe specifically with with ayahuasca that it needs to be done with someone who is indigenous and respectful of the tradition because the thing is that that especially westerners white people don't understand is that 
it's not just about the medicine itself. It's not just about the plant. It's about the entire context of the ritual, the, the, the ritual, the jungle, the land. It's a part of the land. So if you're doing this, this medicine with someone who doesn't know the names of the plants that live around the ayahuasca, that doesn't know the name of the animals that live there, that hasn't even been there, like you're not you're not understanding it's like for like in in western culture for instance we'll study for instance like a whale and a scientist will go and study it and they won't understand that like i was just reading about this in a magazine the other day that like you also have to study the beavers because the beavers build the dams that prevent the salmon from getting downstream and the whales eat the salmon like it's not just about the whale we live in a biosphere that's connected to everything is connected to everything else and so if you're doing something out of context like the thing is like ayahuasca is powerful medicine and it will communicate to you no matter like even if you did it from like some guy at cvs offered it to you like you would get something out of it but the real message that's coming to it is about context is about situ it's about in situation and we in the west have lost that connection over thousands of years of um you know, specifically in Europe of, you know, colonization and invasion until we became the colonizers, until the, like we were corrupted, so divorced from the land, like especially like, you know, in England with the enclosures of the land and people being sort of cast out from their, um, their, their connection to the land. And this is all very much about connection to the land. Like one, the reason we're so alienated, the reason we choose football instead of, you know, dances to celebrate the animals is because we we're so disassociated and it comes through trauma and so the work that we need to do is to be about reconnecting and however we can find to do that we so should do it if i want to do ayahuasca i got to go down to the jungle well a lot of ayahuasqueros travel up here oh they do okay. yeah good i need i need somebody who can you know make the trip yeah i We'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk to you about a psychedelic experience that I had, which I've mentioned on this show before. I'm super fascinated by that stuff. I haven't done a ton of it in my adult life. I did all of my experimenting in like a very narrow window of time as a college student. That's basically my story. Mm -hmm. And I did them stupidly, like, or not stupidly, but I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. <laughs> I certainly had no like uh, context for like indigenous cultures and like the history of these plant medicines and how they might have been, um, uh, you know, um, used by these various cultures in ceremonial ways and so on and so forth. For me, it was like party stuff and the power of it though <laughs> is like undeniable and, uh, certainly gets your attention. And, you know, in my defense, like I like to sort of minimize maybe my younger self as just sort of a dipshit college kid, but I always viewed, if I'm being honest, I always viewed drug experimentation as um, a learning experience. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going in to simply self-medicate or to just have a party. Like I really knew there was something valuable to learn in particular with those, which I think is the common reaction. If you take enough, you know, you'd be pretty hard pressed to be like, well, whatever. Mm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like an experience <laughs> you can just brush off. Yeah. So um, that said, uh, I wanted, I had a strong desire because I've been reading and reading and reading about it just out of general interest to, to have a do over. And I had been reading so much about these, um, academic studies that had been conducted, uh, conducted in particular at Johns Hopkins, which was the only place in the United States, uh, in the world of academia that I think had Liberty because after a certain point in the 20th century, I think mid century, 
um, towards the 1970s, that research got shut down. Right. Yeah. So they had, I think the reason it interested me is because they had had the opportunity to see what worked mm-hmm. to occasion mystical experiences, which right. was really what I was after. Yeah. I mean, that's why we're, doing that's why thing. we're here. Yeah. <laughs> but they had, you know, they had figured out that, you know, the common, um, vernacular in the world of psychedelia is like set and setting. So yeah. the, the mindset that you're in when you take them and the, the physical setting that you're in when you take them matter greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had sort of perfected that where it's like, you know, a homey environment, comfortable couch, blanket, cool paintings on the wall, maybe a lava lamp. You know what I'm saying? Like they try to create like a nurturing homey environment. The dose has to be high. Yeah. Like four milligrams, four, four grams. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you want to, you actually like that maybe feels a little counterintuitive. I think people are often worried about taking too much and it's like the whole Terrence McKenna joke. It's like, you know, you haven't taken enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you got to do it. Um, and then they even had like a, they have a playlist on Spotify. Wow. Which is like five and a half hours long, I think, which they have meticulously curated to help kind of guide you through. Mm. Um, so I did it. Did you? I can, in this very room. Wow. Did you? I and, thought I, sp- I thought I felt something yeah, special. Right? There's probably remnants of my <laughs> complete meltdown, but I was home alone. Um, I blindfolded myself, which is another part of their protocol, Yeah. which I think um, is extremely, I, I would recommend that. Because it eliminated the possibility of me looking at stuff and getting fixated on yeah. like the television or the, you know, whatever you get fixated on. Yeah. It made the entire experience internal. Sure. Which is really where the action is anyway. Mm. Um, but it forced, forces your hand. So, I mean, like the visual component and just like the, whatever my mind's eye was seeing was extraordinary. It's obviously very slippery and difficult to recount with specificity. Sure. But the question it's that beyond I, language, because I think it's operating in a part of your brain that is, you know, like the, it's not the frontal cortex of your brain, right? That's really being activated. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's all like with the, with specifically with psilocybin, I think it's like creating new neural pathways between parts of your brain that don't connect with one and another. And there's something in the Michael Pollan book. It's about like a part of your brain that gets shut off and I'm going to forget the name of it, but yeah, like things that are happening in your brain, they, they go beyond the realm of language. That's for sure. And certainly I think the part of your brain that in my understanding, and this won't be the most scientific explanation that gets shut off is essentially the part that preserves your ego identity, which is why people feel like they're dying because their ego that they're so familiar with their sense of self is not able to maintain its, its coherent structure. Okay. And so that feels like a death. Yeah, no, like yeah. exactly. So I set up an altar. Yes. Which good, is not, good work. I know it's not something like I'm naturally inclined, but I set up an altar. I was like, I'm, if I'm doing this, I'm going all in. Yeah. I had my Buddha statue. I had this, which I will get to in a moment. So you called on all your guardians to come I stand had with you. Irises, candles. I just set up, I wanted to have, I wanted to make it ceremonial, hmm. which I had never done. As that a, is very important. Yeah. And so the question that I have for you, and I've asked this of people after the fact, and, and I did this, um, after the last time we talked. Uh-huh. So this, this is after we, you know, we, you and I met years ago or a few years ago Yeah. And the intervening time period is when this experiment was conducted. And, you know, I could sit here and babble about like the little pieces that I remember from the experience. Mm. Um, it's not, uh, it's not a cohesive narrative, obviously. Sure. But one thing that I it's, remember, there's no narrative arc. Yeah. 
one thing that I remember um, and was just most stunned by is that when I started to come out of it, like after the peak of the experience and I started to like come back to myself and realize like, oh my God, okay, I'm in my garage. And like, there was a while there where I was just in trance is how I would yes. characterize it. Yes. Where you're sort of in the thing. I came out of it and I was sobbing. Yeah. And not in a way that is necessarily sad or even happy, but just like an unbelievable, unprecedented, I am not a crier. I don't think I'm that repressed. Like I have cried, but I'm not a guy who, I'm not a crier, mm. you know? I cried like you would not believe for like two and a half hours. Even now you seem emotional when you're talking. I, it's unbelievable to me. And this thing was sitting in front of me. I'm holding in my hand a remnant of a Halloween party that we had. And it's a little tiny statue figurine made out of, I don't know what, of a, of a skeleton, but the skeleton doesn't have a head. It's holding its skull in its hands. Mm. And I grabbed this thing. And I was like, I fucking love this thing. I'll never get rid of this. Like this to me is a talisman now because <laughs> I picked it up and I was like, this is, the, this is it. This is exactly how I feel right now. Or it, it symbolized something. And I also thought it was funny. I had enough wits about me at that point to be like, what the fuck is going on? But you know that that's like a shamanic trope, right? What? That dismemberment, that's part of like the shamanic journey is to ha to be decapitated, to be, <laughs> to have your skin eaten off, to have all of your flesh be taken away and then to be rebuilt by your guardians or your guides. Okay. So that image that you hold in your hand of the skeleton holding its head is in fact a shamanic image. And what I mean by shamanic is you know, a sh the, the shamanic is the travel between the worlds, travel to the underworld and back up again in order to retrieve something of value for your community. And so I think, you know, that journey that you just went on was about doing that. And, and maybe it was about bringing back that, that heart, that love, because that those tears, I think what those tears were, you know, are, are compassion, is that because yeah, it was like it was like I felt like I was crying the tears of the world. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah, and I, and you can do that's that I'm telling you, Brad. That is that is what a mystical experience is. Yeah, is you 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 get flooded with those tears, and it's like a sense of like love, and heartache, and beauty, and glory, like beyond language, where like just the encountering with this with life. And all that is like the heartbreak and the beauty and the longing and the connection is so overwhelming, like, and beyond language that all you can do is just cry and you feel like, like, a, it, like a mystical connection, like to the bodhisattvas of, you know, compassion, where it, it's just, I mean, that, that is it. Like that you had one. It feel, hopefully feels like, I mean, I, I guess it's a natural experience or a natural reaction maybe to touching that or to having some deep, like visceral sense of it. Um, like another way, and it's really hard to language, but I was like, there was another element of the experience beyond the, the sobbing fit, which was, there was a part of it where I felt like I was connected to some sort of like consciousness, super highway. Mm. It was like, I felt that. Uh, I tweeted this the other day. Your mind is bigger than your head. 
It yeah. was like that feeling of just like expansive mind and like feeling like, oh, this is like a big thing that we're all locked into that we can't even see. Well, what's so hilarious <laughs> is that we, it's like, yes, of I know, course. It sounds crazy. No, it does not sound crazy. It sounds plainly obvious. And it's just our, um, the ordering of reality that we've like reinscribed so many times that we can't see that. I mean, I really don't understand how people could not see that. When when you look out at night into space, maybe it's because, you know, there's light pollution. We can't look out at night into space anymore. And you see this infinite universe that's going, it's infinite in every direction. Because if you zoom in, like, to, to the atomic level, it keeps going, keeps going there, too. And we see consciousness within ourselves. And we see consciousness within forests. And we see consciousness within other animals. And yet we don't make the connection that maybe... The universe is consciousness. And yet every mystic in every tradition, literally across the world, says that. And we're like, nah, yeah. no, yeah. that can't be right. That's the big schism. I mean, that, <laughs> it's I mean, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. We're looking at it right now. We're experiencing it right now. And how, how, why, why, are, why do we act like that's such a like woo-woo, crazy, ridiculous thing to think about? It's so obvious. It is and it isn't. I mean, I guess it's obvious if you've touched it or if you have. Yes, if you've experienced it, it's it's like saying, I mean, and I know some philosopher does talk about this, like, is this table really here? Do you remember that from philosophy class? There's like literally something about whether or not the table exists. Maybe, yeah, like like some distant corner like of my some, mind. Like some, yeah, phenomenologist or something. But yeah, like when you've experienced that super highway, as you say, it's so clear that it doesn't seem like you're it's not just like oh this is a hallucination because then when you come back to you know ordinary reality you also look around and you see evidence of it everywhere so i'm not saying that there is an organizing consciousness that has a specific interest in whether or not our football team wins or loses i don't think it works like that it's much more about like it is an energy, it is a consciousness, it is a movement and emotion that we are in relationship with and a part of, in the same way that like our liver cell can't really say, hey, you know, I really want you to feed me popcorn. That's what mine would say. But um, <laughs> I mean, it kind of does, and maybe we might respond, but I, but we're not responding like directly to that one cell or if there was some like mitochondria or something in our intestines, like we're not going to be able to communicate with it directly like that, but it does communicate with us. It's a part of our consciousness, right? Like, do you, are you following? I am. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, it's just, it's a lot deeper and more sophisticated than we often give it credit for. It's easy to get just lost in the day-to-day rhythms of life. But that is so laughable though. Like, it's so funny that we're like, yeah, we don't give the universe enough credit for being intelligent. And it's it's like the hubris and like the egotism of human beings just is hilarious. How can you look at the infinite expansive universe of which we like we aren't even a dust moat on a dust moat yeah. and be like we're not giving it credit for being intelligent. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I just think I think like sometimes I'm when I feel like flummoxed by all of this, I'll sometimes be like, "Is this this is just like a it's faulty wiring?" Like you know, 
biologically speaking, from an evolutionary biological perspective, like we've, you know, at this stage in uh, the history of the earth, this is how we've evolved. And we have this ego thing. We have this mental wiring. We have this chattering voice in our head that we mistake for our own identity, our own self. Everybody does this. It definitely makes us a kind of beta model, clearly. It, isn't it? Like, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, so we're just goofy apes. And like, you know, we just have, like, I almost, I have sympathy or a, a sense of compassion for um, human beings, myself included, obviously, because we all are getting tripped up by the same thing. Um, except for maybe these rare beings who somehow live in oneness, but I've never met one. Yeah, I think that those, I mean, I think people do have moments of being in oneness, fleeting but yeah yeah i think i've actually that's the one time i feel like i maybe had one. yeah you had one but that doesn't mean you stay no. in them like i've i've had my moments i'm also like a deeply flawed weirdo so oh, i want like, like <laughs> neem karoli baba you know, you know neem karoli baba was no it's my daughter knocking on this door i'm not gonna answer it okay <laughs> i mean that's up to you <laughs> I'm ignore my children um <laughs> But, you know, I just, I would love to meet somebody who, because I do think that certain human beings, especially with um, deep meditation practice, a certain approach to life can um, achieve a higher level of consistency of being in touch with that deep current of life energy or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Uh, I'm optimistic in that sense. I think it's, I got to believe it's possible. I think that that's, well, I think, you know, that's what the emperor year is about for me in thinking about this year's emperor year is about all of us getting in touch with the wise elder within ourselves. And for me, like, if you read my book, you know, like I am suspicious of wise elders or elders in general, like that idea of like the sort of authority figure I don't trust, but I think that we as a culture need to get in touch with what that means for each of us as individuals instead of looking outside ourselves. But then also, like, I think this idea that, you know, there's someone out there who is always this wise elder gives our power away. I think if we work collectively, when I am not a wise elder, you can be the wise elder for me. And and when you are not the wise elder, then, you know, your partner can be or, you know, your friend can be. We like, can all take turns being yeah, Guru yeah, Baba. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we all need to take turns. I want Yoda. I do kind of want Yoda. Yeah, please come. Right? We're, we're ready for you, like, Yoda. <laughs> like these fucking stories. Like uh, Ramdas, who just passed away. Yeah. Like when he met Neem Karoli Baba, like Neem Karoli Baba, like knew his entire life and like looked at him and he just started bawling. Oh. That shit never happens to me. Mm. Nobody's ever like, I'm going to be your teacher. Mm. I want that person to like single me out. Hmm. Right. You want to be chosen. <laughs> Who doesn't. <laughs> right. Just yeah. to be like enveloped in the love of a guru, whatever. Um, You're still young. I, if... You have the opportunity to meet that person. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. I've got to go on my pilgrimage or something, but uh, you know, yeah, it makes it harder for your guru to, to find you if I'm, you're like not looking if for you're them. stuck in this garage, <laughs> <laughs> holding onto your, uh, skeleton statue and weeping, uh, and having, you know, it, like endless podcasts, uh, you know, not that I'm complaining, but I spend so much time in here. I sometimes, and I think too, like, uh, because of the demands of domestic life, mm. you get into rhythms. It's like mm. hard to like bust out. Yeah, but I think that a lot of the wise gurus that you would meet, for instance, if you were able to meet one, they would just say, 
be a good person, live your life. Right. Yeah. I don't think that they would probably offer you much more wisdom beyond that. I mean, it might come in fancier language, but I I don't think that you're going to meet a guru who's really worth their salt. Who's going to say, go live on a mountain and, you know, sequester yourself away. And, you know, most of them are, in fact, I didn't, did she read that thing that like Thich Nhat Hanh like was interviewed by the Zen monasteries in San Francisco. And he was like, y'all get up too early. Why don't you just try smiling yeah. more? <laughs> well, no, because like, sometimes I think, especially in like uh, sanghas or monastic communities or, you know, any kind of spiritual group, like there can be that, like really that rigidity can set in like that hyper discipline because everyone's trying really hard to get yeah, to, to the, be the most spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so he's like chill, you know, and but I, that goes with our design flaw, right? Like we want to be the best at being the most humble. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, and then like you get into the whole uh, mind fuck about like, am I being compassionate because I am interested in the welfare of others? Or am I being compassionate because I know that to be compassionate increases my happiness, Right. you know? And so you're like, wait a minute, is this a self-interested compassion or is this a compassion that's properly motivated? Mm-hmm. It can become a little bit confusing. This is why I meditate. Just sit down and be quiet. Right. Yeah. Like, it's like, okay. Okay. After all of the parsing, like just sit down and shut up and at least, uh, you know, watch the circus instead of like being it. I mean, it's also, it's also like part of what it is to be human, just to be a part of that circus. So I think we're just like dancing in and out. Like sometimes we're able to step back and sometimes we're in it, but you know, like probably your meditation teachers have talked to you about this, this idea that like meditation is not about getting to the place where you're always watching the circus. It's about noticing when you're part of the circus and when you're not, it's about bringing yourself. It's that moment. I mean, I guess of it's, recognition. Yeah, it's that moment of recognition. It's not about a permanent state of enlightenment. I feel like, cause it can be hard over years and years and years of practice and all these, all these sits, you know, like what, the, like sometimes you can be like, what am I doing? Like, is this really working? What am I doing? Yeah, yeah, but you know how you know it's working? How? Try stopping for six months and see where your life is. I'm too scared to stop. Yeah, because for good I, reason. <laughs> I, I think, but I, but no, I, I say this, but like I, I did stop and start in my 20s, especially with sitting meditation, and finally came to what I feel like is a very serious level of conviction, at least for me personally, that it's foundational. And like once I got to that place, where I was like, okay, this is a foundation. Like this is, this is. um this is no longer up for debate. Like I got to do this. Mm-hmm. And from this, everything else good will spring was like, like my basic approach, but I did stop and I would notice that the craziness would creep back. I'd be more hot tempered. Not that I'm perfect now, but it's, I mean, I understand how you feel because you think how is just me sitting here going to really affect my life in such a profound way? If I stop doing this, I'm still going to be me. I'm still, everything's still going to be fine. But then you stop and then you notice like, I'm getting mad. I'm getting stressed. I'm making stressed out decisions. I'm drinking more coffee. I'm eating worse. Like I'm not exercising as much. Uh, Like I'm getting in arguments with my friends or my partner or myself or myself. (laughs) Yeah. So somehow it does, you know, it does. And I, I, I think, that's the same with magical practices is, you know, witchcraft is just another way of doing it. You know, you're just, you're doing ritual and it's essentially approaching the same 
place, which is just a step out of the way that your mind ordinarily works so that you can see that that paradigm of reality is not the only one, the only option, you know, and I think, you know, witchcraft is, you know, it appeals to people who have who, you know, have a romantic streak, who like, you know, theater, who like props, who like ritual, who like candles, who like the smell of incense, you know, all of those things are just means to achieve that state of, um, being between the worlds of, of being outside of the realms of ordinary reality, which are not really real. But, you know, I spent the summer in a Zen monastery many years ago. And I remember the Roshi talking to the Roshi about, you know, if Zen, if meditation was the most important thing in Zen, then why are, why is there Zen flower arranging? Why do we do the chants? Like, why do we wear the robes? Why do we have this incense and not that incense? And he said, that's liturgy that that helps people believe you don't need it. Like you could do it at a bus stop. Like you don't need any of that, but it just is helpful. It formalizes it. Yeah. yeah it's, and, and, and it's, it's pleasurable. It's beautiful and pleasure and beauty are important and we're here incarnated in these bodies. So why not do all the fun things, say the chants, call in the guardians of the four directions and use your ceremonial sword and trace it in a circle on the floor and chant the names of the goddess because it's fun and beautiful to do that. Well, I enjoyed your book. Um, I mean, we could get, we didn't get a chance to go into all the details, but I think, or at least not, uh, yeah, like not the, there's the, the childhood abuse, which kind of was the dawning, I think that we touched on, but there's a lot more in the book and in your story. And what a great reason for people to pick it up is to please. Go yeah. Go have a read. I think you guys will really like it. It goes into all sorts of different kinds of magic, um, relationships to like mythological figures, uh, relationships in general, relationships in general, partnerships, relationships of family, family legacies and lineage. And, and by the way, I took umbrage. You told me that I was not your target audience. <laughs> I am a self-declared witch. I'm a male witch in Los Angeles. Yes, I I see that this and I celebrate domain. that. In my garage. This is my. What is it? What do witches live in? What's the? I, what they do? They live in hovels in the woods. Yeah, this is my hovel. <laughs> yeah. There's some trees around here. Um, but no, it's such a delight to talk with you again. Congratulations! It's a it's a really lovely book, and um, I am a fan of the work that you're doing. I Thank think, you. you know, anybody who goes out into the world and does things unconventionally, it's a harder road to hoe, but I think what you're doing is needed. Thank you. And I mean, so, I, I feel called to do it. I feel like, you know, maybe not everybody responds to it, but for the people that do, they really do. And like, I'm, I'm here gonna, for one that. One day you're going to turn Tucker Carlson. I think it's going to Oh, be. I think so. There's going to be another oh, definitely. meeting. He's Imagine gonna, if we could get folks like him to like, you know, repudiate <laughs> their yeah. fascist world. Like that would be a real, a real coup. But for, for now, I'll just stick to, you know, focusing on the people who are ready to bring a little bit more magic and goddess into their life. All right. But yeah. I do want to say that if you want to, if people are out there thinking, how can I do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then um, you can get my book, which is called Initiated Memoir of a Witch, Anywhere Books Are Zold. You can also listen to my podcast, 
Between the Worlds. It used to be called Strange Magic, and now it is called Between the Worlds. So check in uh, with that. You can also find me at oracleoflosangeles.com or follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Oracle of LA. All right, folks. There you go. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun to be here. All right, guys, there you go. That is the Oracle of Los Angeles, Amanda Yates Garcia. Super fun, right? Love talking with her. Her, her uh, memoir is called Initiated Memoir of a Witch. It is available now from Grand Central Publishing. Amanda Yates Garcia. You can find her online at amandayatesgarcia.com or at oracleoflosangeles.com. She has a, uh, as she was just saying, she's got a very robust internet presence. You can follow her on Twitter at Amanda Yates G. She's on Instagram at Oracle of LA. Like, track her down. The book, one more time, is Initiated Memoir of a Witch. Go get it. So, I'm sorry I don't have a voice. And I think the levels were uh, popping a little bit there. I'm just, you know, I'm still like ramping up into 2020. It's taking me a while to get my shit together. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at other PPL.com. Don't forget the podcast has its own official app. The other people with Brad Listy app is available for free. Wherever you get your apps, go get the app. So, uh, things are happening. I'm easing into the year. Got Matthew's a pruder coming up. Going to get to meet him in person for the first time. Very excited about that. And uh, some other guests. Like the bookings are starting to happen. So stay tuned. It's weird to lose your voice. I guess maybe it sounds kind of cool. I don't know. Do you guys like it when I lose my voice? <laughs> You're like... There's people out there like, please, lose it. You could just lose all of it. Doing my best. It's 2020. It's the year of the emperor. It's time for a radical change, right? Let's make the world new. <laughs>